but, uh, but I'm glad that there's so many here uh, to be with us uh, for our panel on God and Man at CPAC. My name is Mark Henry. I'm Vice President for Academic Affairs at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Uh, and many of you probably know ISI, uh, but for those of you who don't, ISI is the oldest, founded in 1953, and the largest, with a membership of over 50,000, uh, organization working with conservative students and faculty at universities across the country. Um, and by the way, I should mention that within our membership of 50,000, uh, we have roughly equal numbers of students and faculty. So ISI is at once the largest conservative student organization in the country, the college Republicans aside, uh, and, the, and the largest conservative faculty organization in the country. Uh, at ISI, we sponsor lectures, debates, seminars, conferences, we publish journals, the Intercollegiate Review and Modern Age in particular, and books. Uh, we sponsor the Collegiate Network newspapers, 110 independent student newspapers across the country. Uh, we award graduate fellowships, and we also conduct research aimed at reforming the university. Um, ISI alumni include Ed Fulner, Bill Crystal, Alf Regnery, uh, and thousands of university faculty across the country. Uh, ISI works quietly, which is why many people, I think ISI is perhaps the most influential organization that nobody knows about. Uh, however, even those who think they know quite a lot about ISI and what it does, frequently do not know that uh, ISI's first president was William F. Buckley Jr., uh, who served as our president from our founding in 1953 until 1955. And I'm also painfully aware as I enter middle age, sometime in the recent past, uh, that, uh, that uh, young people today uh, don't know the things that everybody my age knows. Uh, and so, so William F. Buckley, who is this guy? Uh, he is, of course, uh, the founder of National Review, who passed away about almost exactly one year ago. Um, and uh, because he was the founder of National Review, he was in many senses the founder and architect of the modern American conservative movement. Uh, especially as that movement is understood in its classical Cold War period. He was the son of an oil magnate uh, who had made and lost and made again a fortune uh, in Latin America. Uh, he was a devout Roman Catholic. And uh, he had a rather unusual upbringing. Being a child of wealth, he traveled all over the world. Uh, in fact, Spanish seems to have been his first language because he had a Spanish nanny. Uh, he also was privy to uh, an extraordinarily intellectual upbringing uh, because his father had a, very, had a keen interest in ideas uh, and would invite figures like Albert J. Nock, an early libertarian thinker, to dinner on a frequent basis. Uh, Buckley attended Yale University where he was the editor of the Yale Daily News uh, and at Yale also came into contact with a professor, Wilmore Kendall, uh, a famous wild man uh, political theorist uh, who was very influential in the young Buckley, a populist conservative. Uh, after Yale, uh, in 1951, Buckley published God and Man at Yale, which was a success to scandal. Um, and in that book, he famously argued, he famously stated uh, that he thought that the struggle between Christianity and atheism was the most important struggle of the modern world, and the struggle between free markets and communism was the same struggle at a different level. Um, uh, in 1955, he then founded National Review. Between, between God and Man at Yale and National Review, he was president of the creation of ISI. 
And of course, at National Review, in the founding editorial, he said that the intention of the magazine was to stand athwart history shouting, stop. Um, which, of course, uh, implies that history is not going in the right direction. Uh, a different thought uh, from the view of more recent conservatives. Uh, he brought to the magazine all sorts of interesting people, libertarians, uh, focused primarily on economics and the criticisms of the New Deal, uh, traditionalist conservatives, primarily interested in culture and the conservation of custom and habit uh, in the people, and anti-communists, uh, fundamentally motivated by um, foreign policy concerns. And all of them were really uh, brought together uh, in part because they represented different parts of the capacious mind of William F. Buckley himself. Uh, for all of that, it's usually held to be the case that it was anti-communism that was the glue that held together the Cold War conservative movement, which of course does raise the question of what happens when communism collapses, what then? In any event, uh, Buckley went on to fame. Uh, he already had a fortune. Uh, he was a, a widely syndicated columnist in hundreds and hundreds of newspapers. He was the host for decades of Firing Line, which in, in effect was the very first of the talking head political shows, uh, a precursor, for example, to the McLaughlin Group, which is already now an ancient dinosaur. Uh, the, so the host of Firing Line. Uh, he wrote books, dozens of books, including books on uh, sailing, a passion of his, uh, and many, many spy novels. Uh, and he even dabbled in electoral politics, having run for mayor of New York. And, it, and amidst all this, he spent a lot of time skiing in Yishtak. <laughs> now, at his death last year, uh, he was received with, um, with adulation, um, Mark, the, the, his passing was noted uh, with great respect and warm admiration by virtually all conservatives, uh, and almost all liberals, for that matter, also uh, extended their respect to him. Uh, but the question arises of what concrete lessons we can draw from his life and legacy for conservatism today. And ISI is actually famous for uh, trying to push us deeper uh, than mere slogans. Uh, to try for a really genuinely critical appreciation and appropriation uh, of our conservative legacy in common. And so, for my part, uh, I would raise some questions. Uh, we'll have the gentleman on our panel to uh, help us with the answers today. Uh, but for my part, I would raise some preliminary questions uh, that I have when I, when I consider the life of Buckley. For example, the first question was fusionism, which was the National Review of Political Position, the synthesis of anti-communism, libertarianism, and traditionalism, the, the uh, desire to uh, work towards traditionalist ends, the end of virtue, by libertarian means, the means of freedom, was fusionism uh, really something substantial? Or was it perhaps an intellectual aberration? Was it a mirage or a Rube Goldberg contraption? That doesn't really work. What we see around us after the collapse of communism uh, is a, an apparent desire on the part of many libertarians to go their own way, to chuck off their connection with social conservatives, uh, to embrace, uh, in the words of a Reason magazine editor, uh, a position of dynamism, the celebration of the destruction of ancient custom, convention, and moral tradition. 
On the other hand, for their part, the social conservatives in power, uh, we saw during the Bush administration, seem unable to effect a real, genuine li uh, limitation of government. Uh, they seem irresistibly drawn to big government solutions. They seem to have no principled opposition to big government. So that's my first question. The second question. Uh, Anti-communism is the glue that held together the conservative movement and was very important for Buckley. But what, what can we learn from the experience of the totalitarian threat? Was the totalitarian threat of the 20th century, the communist threat, uh, paradigmatic, something that recurs at all times and places? Or was it, in fact, an exceptional time, requiring exceptional principles, principles from which we perhaps don't have that much to learn? Uh, if the Cold War was a unique experience, absolutely vital to defeat communism, but that was because communism was an extreme example of something very seldom repeated, uh, then what, what then? What, what then are the lessons for conservatives? A third question. There is today a new populism astride the land, both on the left and on the right. And conservative writers based in New York and Washington uh, tell us to resist this populist temptation. Matthew Continental even, uh, in a recent article in the Weekly Standard. Um, they tell us that elites are important, uh, that the country can't operate without elites. Now, William S. Buckley was an unabashed aristocrat. But, but he was not an elite in the sense that we hear defended today. Um, because a functional, uh, functionalist elite Rising to its position through technocratic expertise is a very different thing from that which William F. Buckley represented and often defended in print, which was to say the elite as a social class and that social class being the class of the gentleman. Uh, there was a theme running throughout National Review in Buckley's great days, the theme of the gentleman. Conservatives aspired to be gentlemen, which is something different from being an elite. A, a meritocratic, technocratic elite. My question is, has conservatism lost this thing? And what are the consequences? This seems particularly important to me because Buckley, the unabashed aristocrat, also was really, quite frankly, an extraordinary populist. Perhaps that can be said of the gentleman in a way that it can't be said of technocratic elites. Fourth question. Buckley was a Roman Catholic and the ethos of Roman Catholicism flavored National Review for, for a generation. Uh, because it flavored National Review, it also influenced the whole of the conservative movement. Today, the demographic base of the Republican Party is evangelical Protestantism. What difference does this make? And if the difference matters, what do we make of it? A fifth question. Buckley was an enfant terrible, a terrible infant, his whole life. Um, he was happiest in opposition. Uh, his books were titled things like In Vain We Will Go. Uh, the, mag the magazine had a satirical side, said by some to be sophomoric. My question, is this an altogether healthy thing? Does snarkiness prepare you for governance? <laughs> and finally, uh, a question that emerged from Jeff Hart's uh, 50th anniversary history of National Review, uh, the making of the American conservative mind, National Review and its times. Uh, the strategy of the conservative, uh, should that strategy have been 
and Buckley's strategy in National Review have been to replace the existing liberal elite or to persuade that elite to move in a conservative direction. In other words, the question is, is the, the, is the conservative strategy best effectuated by the creation of alternative, alternative institutions or by an attempt to transform existing institutions in a conservative direction? It's a strategic question that was answered in one way. Uh, but is that the right answer? So those are the questions that I have uh, that, I, that I hope we'll all be thinking about. Uh, and with us to help to help us wrestle with these and many other questions and to appreciate Buckley's legacy in general, uh, we have three figures from contemporary journalism uh, who are more than usually erudite. Uh, James Panera, uh, who is the managing editor of the New Criterion on the on, on my far right, uh, is the and on your left, uh, the managing editor of the New Criterion, the monthly from New York that engages culture. Uh, is a Dartmouth alum, Brooklyn Dartmouth Review. Uh, he writes the Gallery Walk column in the New Criterion. He's also written for the New York Times Book Review, the New York Magazine, Vanity Fair, Wall Street Journal, National Review, etc. And is the co-editor of the Dartmouth Review, Pleads Innocent, a collection of the best of the Dartmouth Review. Matthew Cottonetti is a Columbia grad who is associate editor of the Weekly Standard here in Washington. He's the author of The K Street Gang, the Rise of the Republican Machine? And Fall. And Fall. Which was a wonderfully honest uh, investigation of some of what goes on in Washington. Uh, he's an NPR commentator and is currently working on a book entitled, tentatively, The Persecution of Sarah Palin. <laughs> Dan McCarthy uh, is senior editor of the American Conservative Magazine, also here in DC. Uh, he is an alumnus of Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, he blogs at a website entitled The Tory Anarchist, uh, which is interesting. Uh, and he is a, an advisor to the new organization Young Americans for Liberty, which is sort of the, the Ron Paul Youth League. Uh, so I want to uh, welcome them all. Uh, and, and actually, I have a colleague waving the back uh, to tell me uh, you've all received this uh, on your chair. Um, this is a way to sign up for ISI membership. Uh, I hope you'll want to be an ISI member after you see our panel today. Uh, so please fill it out and hand it to some ISI person that you see anywhere in the room. I would be one. Uh, and uh, so I wanted to leave you with that infomercial. Uh, so let's get started uh, with James Panero first. Uh, thank you, Mark. Um, you could have emailed us those questions ahead of time. Well, thank you uh, for inviting me on this panel, and uh, especially thank the audience at CPAC uh, for coming out on the Saturday morning. Um, I don't usually like to flatter an audience, but you guys really are the smartest people here. <laughs> uh, this is not... This has not been a good year, uh, and it's especially not been a good year for conservatives, but a year of losses. Uh, but in my opinion, the greatest loss occurred not in November, but on February 27, 2008, when Bill Buckley passed away at age 82. Uh, he was at his study, it was the morning, um, and he died as, uh, in an appropriate way, a very sad way, in an appropriate way, writing his latest column. And he was surrounded by, uh, 
his cook, uh, his maid, and a friend of mine who was staying there at his house in Stanford overnight to practice the uh, Beethoven's Diabelli Variations, this music being one of Bill's main loves, and uh, uh, Bill had asked him out there to play the Diabelli Variations for him, and unfortunately he never got to perform it for him. It's been a difficult year for me, thinking about the legacy of Bill Buckley, and uh, maybe I needed a year to pass before I could really kind of, kind of come to grips with it. What Bill did for me is, he didn't tell us what to think, but how to think, and how to live as conservatives, as citizens, and as gentlemen and as ladies. Like Edmund Burke, who looked at the incivility of the French Revolution, Buckley understood that conservatism is a politics of manners. It's not born in government, and it's not born in ideology, although there are components of the conservative movement certainly in government and in ideology, but it's not from there. And nor is it from a single issue or even a constellation of issues. I think Bill understood this better than anyone. And with Bill, you have the history of conservative thought embodied, really embodied, in one brilliant person. Uh, for him, conservatism was behavioral and even theatrical, and he executed that uh, real. It's the reason that we're not left with a single manifesto that Bill wrote. I think the closest thing we have to a manifesto may be God and Man at Yale, his first book. Um, and I think looking back on it, uh, when he talked about it later in life, he was almost a little embarrassed by it manifesto qualities. Um, he did write 40 books though, um, and it doesn't include uh, his thousands of syndicated columns, his uh, hundreds of episodes of Firing Line. Uh, I'm told that his correspondence weighs in the tons, and uh, it's now filtering through it at Yale, and um, uh, boy, I think some of the archives went. So to understand Bill, you can't just look to his writing. I think you need to take a whole sum of the kind of totality of his friendships and loyalties uh, and his hobbies. And he instructed us uh, in many ways through his, his example and the example of his life. Uh, he was informed by custom, ritual, the Latin mass, the, Gold, the uh, Mozart's Goldberg variations, and celestial navigation. He was also a creature of habit, in many ways extraordinary habits. I got to see this a little bit late in life, late his life, when um, he invited me uh, to Switzerland, to Gestalt Switzerland, uh, when I was right out of college, to uh, work on a novel he was writing, a spy novel. It was uh, on the um, uh, head of counterintelligence uh, for the CIA named James Jesus Angleton, and uh, espionage and thrillers being one of Bill's passions. And actually, um, Angleton became the model for uh, the movie The Good Shepherd, although I think Bill's book that we produced was better than that movie, I'll, I'll say that. Um, in terms of his habits, uh, he got up before anybody else, 4.30 or 5, um, 
he was writing his column usually in the morning before I even arrived. I arrived around 7.30 or 8. Um, we'd write for the morning. He had a, uh, as part of his kind of daily regimen, uh, he would, um, he aimed to write 2,000 words of the novel a day. Uh, this in addition to his columns, figuring that at the end of five or six weeks, he would have enough for a whole book. And he did this once a year. This was his vacation, by the way. This is not even his work. This is how he spent his vacation. Um, he didn't take off weekends. At noon, we'd go out to lunch, and uh, I think it was the first time I understood at that point Billis as the kind of the brilliant artist that he was. He doesn't get enough credit, I think, uh, for his artistry. Uh, he never knew where his plot was going. He would say, oh, should we kill off this character? Uh, why don't we put a gun hidden in the camera and then we'll send him off to Lebanon or something. <laughs> and then it'll be my job as the you know, young 21-year-old assistant to then tell him what Lebanon was like in 1964. Um, and give him like a street map and that kind of thing. And then when he got the chronology all wrong and changed all the names of his characters in the next chapter, I would tell him, well, you know, this already happened, and we'd have to kind of figure it out again. Uh, his, mind, his mind was moving that quickly. Um, did I mention the skiing? We skied every afternoon. I just mention this because I never, never leave my life this way again. So, it was a high point for me. Yeah. Uh, there was skiing in the afternoon, back to work uh, for three hours in the late afternoon. Then his uh, butler would bring in a kir, which is uh, wine and uh, creme de cassis. Uh, we drink that. We have a cigar. We discuss how the book was going. We discuss who we should kill off. Uh, and then there would be dinner, in which we would invite all the kind of literati of. Um, of Gestad uh, over, uh, including Roger Moore, which is very unusual for me to see Roger Moore. Um, uh, there's, there's actually a funny story of, of Roger Moore Gestad, where um, he actually is not a very good skier. And someone saw Roger Moore at the top of the mountain, I guess someone got hurt, so they asked Roger Moore to carry half the stretcher. And uh, they were very surprised when he couldn't carry the stretcher properly, and I think he probably hurt the person even worse. <laughs> it was a stunt. Um, after Gestad, uh, I, I was able to keep up with Bill because another ritual he had was that every Friday night in the summers, um, he would take four people out of his little boat, a Tito, a 36-foot sloop, um, out of Stanford Harbor, do an overnight usually to Eden's Neck, um, drink a lot of wine, talk shop, uh, sail back the next morning. Uh, one thing that was interesting, though, about talking with Bill, especially when he sails, is that if you ever want to get a political answer out of him, it was kind of like consulting the Oracle of Delphi. <laughs> You'd get something, but usually it would involve a couple words you didn't know, and you didn't pick up. And um, I, I think that's, again, the kind of method he used where he wanted you to think about the issue yourself rather than giving you the answer to it. <clears throat> um, I will say that, uh, you know, most of us, of course, never got a chance to know Bill personally. But his uh, autobiography called Miles Gone By, which came out a couple years ago, is, is really the best, um, I think, summary of who he was as a person. Because Bill didn't just embody uh, conservatism uh, in his nature, he knew how to broadcast that nature. Uh, he was extremely uh, adept at using modern technology um, to tell the world who he was, not just in syndication and print, uh, but he was a master of television, 
through firing line, and uh, it's the reason he was so recognized um, in this country. He loved the latest gadgets, uh, GPS navigation, that kind of thing. So he wasn't just a traditionalist uh, you know, on the typewriter. I think he was the first to use email. Um, this book is illuminating, I think, in, uh, in the sense that it opens uh, with Bill discussing a childhood memory he had on the nature of fireflies. And for someone who's the kind of godfather of a political movement, it's not what you'd expect uh, to come out of. But I think, I think the imagination for him and uh, uh, the imaginative world was so important uh, was something the 20th century, especially the left, I, I think, sought to attack, but also sought to attack childhood. So he indulged childhood in its best ways. Uh, he also discussed how the shortened days in the summer were for him, um, he thought, exhibit, examples of divine displeasure. He raced horses, uh, he practiced the piano, uh, he, he wrote about the Latin mass, and then he wrote about his uh, adult pursuits at length here, skiing uh, and, uh, and sailing. Um, and also the delights he had, I think, at misadventure. Uh, when Bill decided to sell his boat named Petito, uh, my friends and I got together and purchased it, uh, mainly so to stay in the family. And so we kept it in Stanford and we were able to continue to sail with him. And uh, when I took it out once on uh, Long Island Sound and I had a whole meltdown of all his old equipment, um, I wrote to him, maybe expecting some sympathy, and he just said, welcome to adversity, buddy. <laughs> this book is also illuminating, I think, in uh, Bill's many associations and friendships. Uh, most interestingly, his friendships with people on the left, uh, John Kent Galbraith, uh, especially, uh, they went to Gestad every year, they shared a car uh, in Gestad. I think I actually ruined the clutch on that car. Uh, I didn't know how to drive stick. Um, I, learned, I learned on John Kenneth Kelvin's car, let's consider that. Um, what this demonstrated to me was that friendship trumps politics for Bill. Um, and this is different, I think, from the behavior of someone on, on the left. Uh, Prove that um, Liberals could, could be in the same room with conservatives, that uh, conservatives could be in the same room with liberals. He, he domesticated conservative thought. Um, and I think this, was, this went to the heart of the fugitivism we're talking about. Bill was also, as, as we know, uh, chairman of the Yale Daily News. This, his experience at Yale then became God and Man at Yale. Uh, and I think he never gave up his love of working with young people. Uh, I know he loves CPAC. Uh, it's actually how I first got to know him at Dartmouth College when I was editor of the Dartmouth Review. He came up and delivered a talk called uh, God and Man at Dartmouth, which, if I may plug my book, is collected in this book. Bill gave me all his columns for this book. And I think it's free to give out, is what I understand. So take a look at it. Um, so he also demonstrated that friendship uh, trumps age. I will say working with him was, at the age of 21 was for me like staring into the sun and uh, I think my eyes are still adjusting to that experience. Uh, so I'll just say in conclusion that his legacy uh, is to lead our lives by his conservative example. Thank you.
nice introduction, James. Person Buckley, I think I'll try to talk a little bit about his legacy. Before I do that, though, I wanted to opine slightly on um, something that occurred to me this morning as I was walking through CPAC. Um, it's been a few years since I was here last, and it was reassuring to me to see all the attendees and to see all the booths and exhibitors and all the books and intellectual ferment and the politicians coming here because for a second there, there was this mild cognitive dissonance I had because I've been spending all this time, too much time, reading article and article and essay after essay written by the usual suspects, some on the left and then some on the right, you know, the EJD, my friend EJ Dion, and, or, or uh, Fareed Zakaria, or Sam Tannenhaus, or um, you know, the list goes on and on telling us that the right is dead. You've heard this, right? This is the new argument that somehow the past two elections shows that the conservative movement is over. And of course, it's self-evidently false. Uh, if they had to, you know, if, if the very fact that liberals or even some conservatives have to argue this means that it's false, because we don't we don't still have debates in our opinion magazines and our newspapers about you know the Whig party is dead. You know, we don't argue about that. <laughs> Prohibition is over. You know what I mean? Repeal the, we don't argue. When, once a political issue is settled, actually, there's no debate about it because politics is disagreement. Politics is debate. And so the very fact that we have to have an argument about where the place of the right is in America today means that the right is very much alive. So whenever you hear liberals tell you this, and trust me, they'll tell you this. Just remember that. Um, and it, like James said, it was, it's been a year of losses, Buckley's, perhaps most importantly. But you know, it strikes me listening to James and all these personal reflections about William F. Buckley the man. Of course, CPAC is an event attended primarily by students, right? Young people. And I have to say, to play this devil's advocate here, I'm not sure how much William F. Buckley, when we think about legacies, how much of a role he played in a lot of the conservatives coming up today. You know, I mean, he Buckley had a very long and drawn-out retirement. First, he gave up National Review, the editorship. Then he gave up <coughs> public speaking. Then he divested himself from National Review, the company. Uh, one thing after another, slowly but surely, taking himself out of the public sphere, focusing more on his aesthetic efforts. Towards the end of his life, he really was an aesthete more than he was a political commentator. This is the environment in which I became a conservative, and since I'm slightly older than most of you, um, it means that it's even you're even more removed from that. So I can only have one memory of William F. Buckley. I met him twice, and, uh, and I think the memory, the, the extended amount of time I spent with him kind of illustrates the person he was, which I think is unique, and I don't think we're going to see anything like him again. I, I really don't. And I know that there are a lot of imitators even in his time, there were imitators. People wanted to ape the Buckley persona, the, uh, the, the, the joie de vivre, since we're using all these French words um, <laughs> in the Buckley hat. You know, they wanted to ape that, they wanted to, to mimic that. But I don't, think it's, I, I don't think it's a lasting model for conservatives. I'll give, you, uh, I'll give you the reason in one word, which is finger bowls. So I was invited, when I was briefly working at National Review, as helping Rich Lowry write this legacy in the Clinton years, and uh, I, I was invited to go to the Buckley uh, uh, apartment, the Masonette, on 72nd? 73rd. 73rd. And Park? Yes. 
seventy-eight pavilion, and. Um, and so this was a masonette that the Buckleys kept. It was they've had it for years, and this is where they had the editorial dinners. And every two weeks they'd have. It used to be every week, but again, since Buckley was slowly divesting himself from really just public life, um, at this period, this is 2002, they only had it once every other week. And they would be Bill Buckley and Pat Buckley, and they would host a, a, um, not only the editorial board, National Review, but usually a few guests. People who were in the news of mine, Larry Kudlow was there. It was always fun to be around, and then a few other economists, because Buckley always wanted to shape these dinners based on a certain topic, and tonight's topic, that night's topic, was the economy, um, which was a little bit rocky in 2002, nowhere where it is today, of course. Um, so we, we have this, and it, it was all very, you know, because Buckley became such a character, such a celebrity, he had, I think he felt that he had to do certain things. He had to go to Gestad every year. You know, this is the way he enjoyed life, but it was also became kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So there was the very regimented, and also we were conservatives, we like regimentation, right? We like order. So, you know, we had the cocktail hour, and that was very, it was one hour in cocktails in the red room where Pat would be there and the dogs, I don't know if you remember Buckley's Terriers. Um, and, and we'd drink and talk, and then we'd move to the dining room where we'd be served the, food and everything. And so uh, we have the first course of the meal. Now, all through this entire night, uh, much to my chagrin, Buckley did not know my name. He kept calling me Paul. And I, <laughs> I guess it was a disciple. He must have gotten confused now. <laughs> and I kept having to remind him, no, sir, my name is Louise. And then, but, but demonstrating his graciousness, he did seat me right to his left. So. I was very happy to be right next to him and be able to talk to him and just, he just kept calling me, call. <laughs> yeah, that must be why he never, he never heard me. So the first, so the, the first course is finished and all of a sudden these um, goblets are put to the fore. They, they've been there, but they're these goblets that were just pushed to right in front of our place setting, in front of everyone's place setting. I've never seen these things in my life. I grew up in Springfield, Virginia, about 10 minutes away from the Beltway, so suburb. Never, I don't know what this thing is, but it was a finger bowl. <laughs> now, I've been, I had been warned, luckily, that, um, that these finger bowls were going to make an appearance, but finger bowls are a very aristocratic tradition, fine dining and etiquette, and what happens when you finish a course, you dip your fingers in the water and then you dry them off. And that's how you're cleansing your, your hands in between courses. Now, luckily my friend, Sarah, had reminded, had warned me about it. Whatever you do, don't touch the finger bowls. You, know, you can try them if you want, just ignore them. But there have been horror stories of other young people who go into the Buckley Masonette for this editorial dinner and the finger bowl is pushed in front of them and there they go, oh, water is here. <laughs> and Miss Pat Buckley, who, was, you know, who passed away in 2007, and who uh, you know, was known for her rapier wit, would often not let that go unnoticed. And so I was lucky. But it, what that brings to me, home to me is, this story is, who William F. Buckley Jr. was. And he was very much, I think, an elitist. And he was an ideologue. And those are both fine things, right? We need elites and we need ideologues because ideas shape politics and behavior. But it's very different from where I think the conservative movement is today. The conservative movement today is populist, and it's partisan. It's populist in an extent that it has wide reach, 
this is a good thing for conservatives, I think, because it means finally that their ideas have some political sway over a not insubstantial part of America. It's partisan, which is also good, because it means that your ideas have political power. You're actually able to implement all these great ideas. When William F. Buckley was developing as an intellectual and uh, dining with Albert J. Nock and um, you know, reading The Free Man, these were all well and fascinating ideas about the role of the state and the individual and the polity. Great, exciting stuff. It was one thing that held it all together. They had absolutely no influence over the real world. <laughs> they literally were standing before history yelling stop because that's all they could do. Not anymore. Thanks in part to Buckley and the things he created, the Republican Party became the vessel for conservative ideas. And it had a good, it had a good run. Right? And I think it could have a good run again. But it's just very different from the milieu, another French word, in which Buckley was born, bred. I do think we can look at Buckley's legacy in terms of institutions. You know, when you think about, well, how does an individual person live beyond their passing? And it's really, you do it through your children, and you do it through your, your writing, your works, or you do it through the institutions that you contributed to or that you created. And Buckley had uh, a hand in creating many institutions which live on today. Young Americans for Freedom, ISI, of course the National Review, which is still going strong. So I think that is where his real legacy is. As you can see it every day, you can pick up these magazines, you can go to these conferences. He had one child, Christopher Buckley, but Chris Buckley isn't working out that well for conservatives. <laughs> and of course he has his works, which are voluminous, but often hard to find. You know, you're gonna, there aren't many Buckley books in print. The ones that are, that you can go to Barnes & Noble and get, or Borders, are the spy novels, the ones that uh, James helped out. But if you're a wannabe developing ideologue, which I hope you all are, it's, uh, it can be hard. Now luckily a lot of you are students, and I remember when I was a student, since I had this wonderful university library, all the Buckley books are there, and you can go back and you can, and you can read them. I would, uh, I would recommend one in particular, a collection of Buckley's speeches, which I think was, had more of an impact on me, and this could just be because I'm unusual, you know, a different book may have better impact on you, but um, his collection of speeches called Let Us Talk of Many Things is very good. I highly recommend it. And for any of you who are familiar with the way that Buckley's spoke, his elocution, his voice, which I think is the thing that most people who knew, uh, knew him remember him by. You can hear him say these words as you read them. And so I would recommend that book. But let's think about how I, just briefly, how the conservative movement, I mentioned two ways in which the conservative movement has changed since Buckley really came into his own, was that his apogee. But I think there are a few others. And I, I just used, for example, the founding of National Review in 1955. Well, if you, if you think about it, the founding of National Review is closer to Theodore Roosevelt's presidency than it is to Barack Obama's. So he's developing these ideas in a context very much divorced from our own. And I'll, I'll just name briefly three three differences between that, that context, Mark already touched on some of them, but I think we should draw them out a little bit more, and our context, because as we think about these things, as we try to create, if not new William F. Buckley's, but people who have the same commitment to ideas 
that William F. Buckley Jr. had. We need to be aware of these distinctions. Well, first, I think, most important is there is no Soviet Union anymore. And Mark mentioned it, too. He said, you know, this is the glue that kind of got all the, oh, the libertarians, you know, can't have the communists take over, uh, take over the globe. The national security conservatives were the same way, and the social conservatives were also in, in great fear of godless communism. Well, the Soviet Union doesn't exist. So what we saw since the Soviet Union collapsed, thanks to conservatives' efforts, I think, that you had this breakup of the conservative movement. You had people fighting all the time. This is still going on. Because you don't have that unifying force. I think there was an attempt to maybe make militant Islam, to make jihadism, something similar to the Soviet Union. But I think what we found, as great as that, great as that threat is to the United States, it's not the same type of threat. Um, because what we found in Iraq and Afghanistan is people just don't like living under <laughs> militant jihadists. So they, they, it, takes, it took 70 years for Russians to get tired of communism. It took, it took two years for, uh, for people to get tired of living under Al-Qaeda in Anbar province in Iraq. It's not quite the same. However, there's a, there's a trick to this, a problem, which is that we the United States defeated the Soviet Union and has now found itself in this place where it is this global superpower. And yeah, you hear all the time, oh, the rise of the rest. Yeah. And that's happening. But it's going to be a long time before even the rest catch up to the state of US power in the world. And it's the very nature of this power that burdens the United States, in my opinion, with a lot of global responsibilities. Uh, gets us tied up in places gets us involved in problems that may not be able to solve, we might not be able to solve, but to do nothing actually creates a whole uh, other set of consequences, unanticip unanticipated consequences, which might also be negative ones. So this is a dilemma for conservatives. It's something that we're fighting for. I think we're gonna, that debate's going to continue. The other thing, government is so much larger today than it was even in Buckley, even when Buckley founded National Review. Big government. The end of the New Deal, right prior to the onset of the Second World War, just speaking with Amity Schley's book, The Forgotten Man, is excellent, recommend it. That the end of the New Deal, prior to the onset of World War II, federal expenditures as a percentage of GDP were at 9%. So the government, FDR's New Deal big government, comprise 9% of GDP. Today, it's at 27%, three times as much. So if 9% sparked this reaction among people like Frank Meyer, James Burnham, William F. Buckley Jr., Albert J. Knox, what is 27% doing? I mean, we have we have a very strong libertarian part of the conservative movement. But the problem for conservatives is you want to conserve something. And the American public, it seems, has grown used to a government that at least takes care of them in their retirement, you know, at least provides for the defense of the country and perhaps the maintenance of a world order that the United States perhaps inadvertently created by winning the Cold War. 
So this is a whole other set of dilemmas for conservatives, uh, problems that they have to think through. There isn't, it seems to me, a political constituency for limited government. This is a huge problem. The success of liberals has been that they create political constituencies through government handouts. FDR created the Social Security Act, and all of a sudden, every senior, don't touch my Social Security. The famous story is of someone, a old, old, older lady coming up to a Republican politician and telling him, whatever you do, don't let the government get its hands on my Medicare. People don't want those things touched. And we have, we have parts of the population that may want limited government. They want us to leave, they want the government to leave them alone. I think that's a growth area, right? But this is another problem. And then the third problem, I think, one that I, I, I think the conservative movement and the Republican Party more generally is handling better than the other two, is the diversity of the United States. This is a very different country, demographically, than the country in which William F. Buckley Jr. came of age. Minorities comprise about a third of the population, the U.S. population, that number is growing. Demographic projections continue, you know, that, that is similar to about the non-minority population will be about a plurality for 20 years, not a majority. But I think we see that Republicans are dealing with that in a, in perhaps in a more constructive way, right? I mean, the chairman of the RNC, Michael Steele, is an African-American, and uh, who do the Republican Party tasked to give the response to President Obama, but an Indian American, Bobby Jindal, the governor of Louisiana. So those are the three areas. There's a lot of conflict, but I would add, I'll just end on a note of optimism, which is, I was one of those conservatives, uh, I, I am one of those conservatives, but I never quite understood, since my context was so different from the Buckley context, what he was trying to get at when he said that the job of conservatives in National Review was to stand up for history yelling and stop. Because, of course, I came of age, I grew up, I was born with Ronald Reagan as president. I grew up in the, I mean, I came, my lifetime is basically the lifetime of the greatest 25-year expansion in the global economy in the world's history. I saw the collapse of the Soviet Union. I saw the Republican Revolution. Why would I want history to stop? <laughs> Things seem to be going okay. But I'll tell you what, the more I hear from President Obama, the more I understand what William F. Buckley Jr. was saying. So it's, I think it may be time to start, to start yelling stop again. Thanks. My uh, remarks may take a rather different uh, tack from the uh, preceding uh, comments. Um, I would argue very strongly that uh, the conservatism of William F. Buckley is not significant uh, because of its lifestyle or the manners that were involved in William F. Buckley Jr., although these are certainly very important attributes. They are not uh, philosophical attributes. Uh, you find any number of people on the left, including Buckley's good friend John Kenneth Galvin, who in fact uh, would have manners every bit as refined as Mr. Buckley himself, or who uh, you know would enjoy the same kind of sumptuous lifestyle. That is not a political philosophy, and Bill Buckley 
uh, certainly was enough of a political philosopher himself that he would recognize and criticize people who attempt to uh, make a lifestyle out of uh, the good life or conservatism. The good life does matter. I mean, I don't want to say that that's not a part of conservatism. It is something we want to conserve, whether or not it's being enjoyed by people who consider themselves liberals or conservatives, whatever else the case may be. But in order to defend that kind of life, in order to defend manners, you need to have a political position. And that political position needs to be grounded in philosophy. And for that reason, I must also uh, critique the notion that because the historical context of William F. Buckley Jr. was quite different from our context today, that therefore we have little to learn from uh, Mr. Buckley's work. In fact, uh, ISI and uh, a tradition of conservatism mostly identified with Russell Kirk and with Edmund Burke, but also uh, I think William F. Buckley Jr. and uh, his efforts partake of this as well, has always been dedicated to preserving the permanent things. It has always been about uh, unchanging moral law and unchanging economic law as well. And uh, these are qualities which you certainly do find represented in Mr. Buckley's work, uh, as I will be uh, arguing. I want to begin a little bit by uh, Pointing to the cover story of the current issue of uh, the magazine for which I am the senior editor, uh, The American Conservative. Uh, unfortunately, I did not have uh, copies of the current issue to give out uh, today. I think uh, some of you may have a back issue. But the uh, cover story of the current issue is written by John Darbyshire, who is a, uh, an Englishman who writes for National Review primarily. He's a contributing editor there, in fact. And uh, the name of the story is How Radio Wrecks the Right. And it is an extended critique of Rush Limbaugh and what uh, we have called uh, Happy Meal Conservatism. Uh, cheap, uh, sort of uh, filling in the short term but not satisfying in any kind of deep way. And uh, quite popular, but at the same time something that uh, I think the refined taste uh, rebels against. Uh, Mr. Darbyshire's article is about, uh, you know, sort of how we need uh, something more than just lowbrow conservatism. It's something even more than just middlebrow conservatism. We also need a highbrow conservatism. Well, the reaction to Mr. Darbyshire's article has uh, been illuminating. Uh, we've seen uh, a great many hostile emails at the American Conservative from offended ditto heads who uh, are outraged uh, at the idea that there would be any other kind of conservatism beyond the kind of uh, uh, talking points that Mr. Limbaugh uh, distributes over the airwaves. Um, and it's, it's interesting because the attack has not only come against Darbyshire, which would make some sense, or the American Conservative, which would make some sense, but oddly enough, they drag William F. Buckley Jr. into this. Uh, they say that uh, Mr. Darbyshire, as a contributing editor to National Review, represents the kind of elitism that William F. Buckley Jr. represented, and this is a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, they draw uh, undue attention, for example, uh, to the fact that uh, William F. Buckley supported uh, legalization of marijuana. Now, you know, there's a good argument to be made for that, and, you know, there are also arguments against it. Uh, I tend to be with Mr. Buckley and support uh, legalization. I think that prohibition uh, turns out very badly no matter what you're trying to prohibit. Nevertheless, this is a serious issue, and it's something that serious people debate. But it's something that uh, the populist right, the Rush Limbaugh right, has latched onto as a way of branding Mr. Buckley as some sort of uh, dissolute individual. And perhaps they would point to the uh, high life that he led as well, the kind of enjoyment of the finer uh, foods and you know, travel to Stad and uh, in Switzerland and so forth, uh, as further indications that Mr. Buckley is not somehow a real American, and that he does not represent uh, you know, what uh, you know, good old mom and apple pie conservatism here in America is supposed to be about. So we actually do see this rather remarkable populist revolt, which uh, even targets Mr. Buckley, who's been dead for about a year and is still you know, a figure widely uh, revered uh, by much of the right. And in fact, this attack on Buckley from the populist right has been ongoing for about 30 years. Uh, it dates back to about uh, 1975 or so, uh, when uh, Kevin Phillips, who actually coined the phrase the new right, 
uh, represented a new kind of quasi-Wallaceite conservatism uh, that was very critical of uh, William F. Buckley's rather erudite uh, kind of conservatism. Although it's, it's more complicated and interesting than that, though, because uh, certainly Kevin Phillips is a highly intelligent individual himself, and uh, he devised, you know, he wrote a book called The Emerging Republican Majority, spelling out how Republicans can gain political power. So there's been a long uh, history of populism and Buckley-style erudite conservatism uh, in conflict. Uh, and the fact that Buckley went to Yale, of course, and was a bonesman, uh, this adds to the uh, sense that he is somehow uh, an elite and can't possibly be uh, a real American. Uh, we all know, of course, that higher education is what turns virtuous plumbers into uh, vicious uh, professors of philosophy. <laughs> now, on the other hand, though, this is only half of the problem that conservatives face in 2009. Part of it is a popula populism that is run amok, but also there is a tendency among certain conservative elites to drift towards social democracy. Now, we have seen that uh, the New York Times and the Atlantic Magazine, uh, respectable institutions of a liberal establishment, have chosen certain voices which they believe will be uh, pleasant representatives of conservatism, people who the establishment doesn't find too uh, you know, obnoxious or difficult to digest, uh, people who uh, advocate maybe compassionate conservatism, or uh, as some people call it, big government conservatism, or for that matter, uh, you know, transforming the GOP into a grand new party that will subsidize the wages of plumbers and uh, teenagers who work at Blockbuster Video. This is radically, radically at odds with the uh, economic conservatism that William F. Buckley represented throughout his life. And uh, so we've come to an impasse where actually neither the conservative elites, especially those that are endorsed by our mainstream media, or the populist uh, side of conservatism that gravitates towards talk radio, neither of them partake very much of the legacy of William F. Buckley Jr. Uh, both of them are hostile to one another, uh, but both of them also totally neglect the kind of fusionist conservatism that William F. Buckley Jr. cultivated. Uh, what has gone wrong here? Well, in fact, I believe that uh, the variety of elitism that we're getting from the op-ed pages of uh, the New York Times, and also the variety of populism that we're getting from the talk radio uh, bombardiers, so to speak, are uh, both quite incorrect, and that in fact we need to return to uh, a, a proper understanding of moral and economic law. But where do we go wrong? Why is it that we have uh, developed a kind of social democratic elite on the one hand and a uh, vulgar populist right on the other? I think we went wrong because we have uh, profoundly misunderstood two victories that took place in the 1980s, and two victories which William F. Buckley Jr. heralded which was the victory against uh, communism, especially godless communism. That was always very important for Buckley. His anti-communism was predicated on his very deep and sincere Catholicism. We've misunderstood the victory against communism, and we have also misunderstood uh, the apparent victory of free market economics uh, in the Reagan era and the defeat of uh, Keynesianism. Uh, as we have seen with uh, Barack Obama's uh, various economic plans, Keynesianism is not dead. Keynesianism is still the regnant ideology, economically speaking, in this country. Uh, how did we come to misunderstand these uh, events of the 1980s? Uh, I think I will point to the life of William F. Buckley and several of his uh, works and several of the ways in which he, uh, his philosophy developed over time as signaling uh, kind of where conservatism started to lose uh, its uh, compass, where it started to lose its uh, reference to the permanent things and to moral and economic law. Now let's remember, although you know, we've uh, had a panel here discussing uh, what a, a wonderful chum William F. Buckley Jr. was, that uh, he was someone with whom uh, you know, both liberals and conservatives and people of no particular political orientation like Roger Moore uh, could get along with very happily. Uh, William F. Buckley Jr. was indeed, as Mark Henry said, an enfant terrible uh, at the very beginning of his career. He was somebody who certainly did have some establishment credentials. He got into Yale, yes. 
He, uh, you know, was in Skull and Bones. He was the uh, chairman of the Yale Daily News, which is just about the most prestigious position a, a student can hold at Yale. On the other hand, though, he was very much a rebel in defense of orthodoxy throughout his uh, college years. Uh, he made a lot of enemies. He made a lot of people very, very angry. This included the rest of the editorial board of the Yale Daily News. Uh, basically, uh, they started to rebel against him about midway through his term and thought very seriously about trying to remove him as editor because they strongly disagreed with his uh, editorials, which defended uh, without any kind of, uh, you know, uh, hesitation, which defended very strongly the free market and, uh, you know, America's Christian tradition. So, Buckley was quite a controversial figure, and certainly his first book, God and Man at Yale, from 1951, uh, made him all the more outrageous uh, to the powers that be. Let's remember the context in which this book was published. It was published in 1951, so this is not an Eisenhower-era book. This is actually a Truman-era book. Uh, let's remember that uh, liberals and Keynesians, uh, secularists, these people had been in power since 1933 consistently uh, up to the point when Buckley wrote God and Man and Gay, uh, through FDR's uh, many uh, terms, and then of course uh, Truman after him. So William F. Buckley Jr. really was taking on an establishment. He was taking on something very powerful, and it, it, it entailed certain risks for him to do this. Um, a mainstream publisher would not publish God and Man at Yale. Uh, Regnery at the time was a very small publisher, and in fact Regnery didn't have the finances to bring this book out. Uh, Buckley's father, William F. Buckley Sr., actually had to uh, give a subvention to help uh, uh, finance the publication of God and Man at Yale. Now, it turned out that there actually was a silent majority, you might say, uh, out there that was interested in these kinds of ideas. It turned out that Buckley's always very refined, always highly educated uh, style of conservatism actually did appeal to a mass uh, base. It didn't appeal to the mass base in a demagogic way, though. It wasn't about, uh, you know, calling people names or anything like that. It was about laying out principles. And it turned out that uh, the American people, or a large part, uh, portion of them anyway, uh, responded to these principles. So God and Man at Yale became a bestseller. Uh, also, Buckley's next book, I believe it was published in 1953, called McCarthy and His Enemies, a defense of... Uh, 1954, thank you. It was a defense of Joseph McCarthy called uh, McCarthy and His Enemies, published in 1954. That, too, became a bestseller. Um, I should point out, by the way, that uh, Buckley was not here inventing conservatism uh, ex nihilo. This was actually, it was not springing fully formed uh, from Buckley's brow like uh, Athena uh, launching forth from the brow of Zeus. Uh, instead, Buckley was actually drawing upon some very well-developed traditions of uh, intellectual thought. Uh, God and Man at Yale, in particular, uh, bears the mark of both Wilmore Kendall, whom uh, uh, Mark Henry has mentioned. Kendall was a philosophy professor at Yale and was a tremendous influence on Buckley. And in fact, Kendall was the editor and uh, even wrote a couple of the more memorable phrases in God and Man at Yale. For example, the phrase that uh, Mark cited earlier, in which uh, Buckley uh, likens the struggle between capital, uh, sorry, the struggle between Christianity and godless communism, uh, and says that, well, the struggle between socialism and the free market is the same battle sort of recapitulated on a different plane. That line, in fact, uh, which became one of the most controversial in the book and was drawn out by very many hostile reviewers, uh, was actually written by Wilmore Kendall. So you can see here, I mean, this is, this is clearly, I mean, this is, I don't know how much you know about the work that editors do, but that is the kind of thing that editors do. Occasionally, they come up with lines that are, you know, sort of refining and, and sharpening the ideas of a writer. So, I mean, it's not as if Kendall was doing Buckley's work for him or anything like that. Rather, Buckley was uh, Kendall's student, and there was a, a, a mentor-apprentice relationship between them. And basically, uh, Buckley's thought was highly, highly influenced by Wilmore Kendall. Now, this is significant for the clash between elitism and populism, because Kendall, while he was uh, you know, perhaps one of the most brilliant intellects on the right in the 20th century, was very much a committed populist of a sort. He uh, defined himself, in fact, as a majority rule Democrat. 
uh, which is you know, quite shocking, actually, because uh, conservatives, especially of the 1950s, uh, really considered themselves an embattled remnant. They considered themselves uh, you know, a sort of elite who was uh, sort of keeping the tablets and uh, keeping civilization alive. And Buckley wants to see not a, a sectarian kind of a Christianity pervading Yale, but he does want to see all classes, whether it's in sociology or whether it's in uh, history, uh, have some reference to the Judeo-Christian tradition, basically uh, making a good argument of respect uh, for the traditions that built this country. But the other side of God and Man at Yale is that he's also arguing against socialism. He's arguing against Keynesianism in particular. And uh, he's making a very strong pro-free market case, which is drawn from Friedrich Hayek and uh, Albert J. Nock, uh, the friend of his father's, who was a, a very great libertarian, uh, and also uh, Ludwig von Mises. Uh, Buckley cites uh, Mises on several occasions. And also um, one of the formative influences on God and Man at Yale was Frank Chodorov. Frank Chodorov was a man who was uh, such a radical libertarian that uh, if anyone threatened to call him a conservative, he said he would punch them in the nose. Um, but Buckley had friends who were both, you know, uh, sort of uh, traditionalist types like Wilmore Kendall, and he also had, uh, you know, a very strong influence from radical libertarians like Nock and Chodorov. And in fact, it was uh, Frank Chodorov who wrote uh, an essay uh, saying that we need a 50-year plan to take back the universities. And the response to this essay is actually what created ISI, which uh, originally stood for the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists. Uh, you can see kind of some of its uh, libertarian qualities there. But um, Chodorov uh, asked Buckley to be the first president of ISI, and uh, ISI very quickly brought on board a fellow by the name of, um, well, actually brought on board several uh, great uh, traditionalists who kind of helped create a, a more thoroughgoing and deeper kind of conservatism than one that simply relied on uh, you know, the uh, Frank Chodorov uh, philosophy. Uh, and that's what made, I think, ISI a very powerful and dynamic force. And Bill Buckley personally represented much of this. You saw uh, both the libertarian and the traditionalist strains coming together in him, uh, both from, from his Catholicism, his traditional Catholicism, and also the influence of Nock and Chodorov, and his father as well. Uh, his father, William F. Buckley Sr., was very much committed to the free market, uh, very much committed to you know, uh, free enterprise. Now, Buckley continued to have a succession of mentors, and that's one of the uh, things I would really commend uh, to the younger people in the audience, is that Buckley took very seriously and studied quite deeply uh, the ideas of people who were older and wiser than he was. So he apprenticed himself to Frank Chodorov and to uh, Wilmore Kendall uh, in his early years at Yale. Later on at National Review, he uh, considered his paramount collaborator, basically the person who was the biggest influence on National Review, uh, to be James Burnham who was a great strategic thinker, who uh, you know, looked at uh, the conflict between the West and the Soviet Union, and who also looked at the development of what he called the managerial uh, regime, which was basically a new kind of government and economics uh, developing from a new class, uh, the, what we call the managers. Um, I would I'd highly recommend Burnham's works, and I very highly recommend Wilmore Kendall's works. Uh, but today, too, you can find many uh, you know, great uh, esteemed conservatives to whom you can apprentice yourself, whether it's uh, George Carey at uh, Georgetown University or Klaus Rinn at uh, Catholic University. There are many very great and deep thinkers out there, and it's not enough just to be a conservative journalist, which William F. Buckley understood very well. You also have to understand the philosophy, and to do that, you have to study very closely uh, the works of these very great minds. And Buckley, to his credit, he understood the distinction between himself and some of the deeper philosophers on the right. Uh, Buckley, in the early 1960s, considered writing a book called The Revolt Against the Masses, which would have been a grand philosophical statement. But he realized that um, that wasn't his calling. His calling was more on the journalistic level. Uh, but he always very greatly admired uh, thinkers such as Leo Strauss and uh, Eric Vogelin. And in fact, um, when uh, Buckley had a clash with some of the populists uh, in the 1970s, early, well, mid-1970s, uh, such as Kevin Phillips, 
Um, he dismissed Kevin Phillips by saying, you know, uh, Kevin Phillips is a man who is proud of his ignorance of Eric Vogelin, uh, and I am ashamed of my ignorance of Vogelin. So basically, Buckley was willing to, uh, you know, uh, apprentice himself very carefully to these great minds. And then throughout his career, he also tried to take uh, young people under his wing and uh, sort of uh, mentor them. He tried very hard to kind of bring them up in the kind of conservatism uh, that had been instilled in him. But something started to go wrong, though, very early on. Uh, his first and in some ways most famous protege was Gary Wills, who is now known as a very liberal Catholic. Um, Wills was, uh, you know, for a time, the uh, drama critic of National Review. And uh, he was, you know, a brilliant man. He's, he's a classicist. He's someone who's, you know, very well trained. He's someone who does have an unorthodox but serious uh, faith. Um, but Gary Wills started to drift towards the left in the 1960s and 1970s on account of the Vietnam War and on account of the Civil Rights Revolution. Um, Wills sympathized very deeply with both of those movements, whereas conservatives were quite critical of them. Conservatives were, you know, generally opposed to the Civil Rights Revolution, and they were generally opposed to. <coughs> Uh, well, they generally supported the Vietnam War. Um, other uh, disciples uh, of Buckley also later on broke with the movement. For example, uh, Austin Bramwell, who writes the introduction to the, uh, the current edition of God and Man at Yale. Um, Austin is someone who had a great deal of experience with ISI and who uh, you know, uh, knew Buckley relatively well. And in fact, uh, Buckley put uh, Austin on the, uh, the board of uh, National Review when Buckley stepped down and he created a board to stand up in his place. Uh, Bramwell was one of the people he selected for that. Uh, but Bramwell's highly unorthodox, and he's highly critical of the conservative movement. Uh, in fact, most of his writings tend to be uh, about sort of how the right got bigger and dumber. Uh, in fact, he even wrote a, a cover story for the American Conservative about this. So you can see there, too, uh, a sense that for some reason, Buckley's protégés were not uh, joining the conservative movement in a way that uh, might have been anticipated. And uh, I believe Matthew Continetti referred to Christopher Buckley, uh, William F. Buckley's son. Um, you can see the Buckley temperament. Uh, William F. Buckley Jr. always said, and I think quite rightly, that he was a philosophical conservative, but he wasn't a temperamental conservative, which is why, you know, uh, he was very much a, a rebel in defense of orthodoxy back during the Yale days. He was very much the enfant terrible. He was very much someone who was always, you know, fighting against a liberal establishment. Well, Christopher Buckley has the same kind of temperament. He, too, is iconoclastic. He, too, uh, has this sense of, you know, defying authority occasionally. The trouble is that uh, in the decades since uh, God and Man and Yale was written, uh, there's become a new kind of uh, conservative and Republican establishment in some places. Uh, let's remember that we had, you know, eight years of Richard Nixon, or, well, eight years of Nixon Ford. We had, uh, you know, eight years of Ronald Reagan. We had eight years of uh, George W. Bush and four years of his father. Um, the conservative movement, as it has become sort of embedded in society and in culture, and as it has, you know, sort of new channels of its own, like talk radio, has become a kind of counter-establishment. And that means people who have the Buckley kind of uh, sense of rebellion uh, don't necessarily gravitate to the conservative movement anymore, because it's no longer just opposing uh, Keynesianism and socialism and godless communism. Instead, what it's doing is, uh, you know, advancing various kinds of Republican agendas. And uh, people who have, uh, you know, sort of careful thoughts about things oftentimes don't fully agree with the Republican program. Now, I, I mentioned uh, that Buckley started to have problems with the populists uh, in the 1970s. One of the big issues was about the Panama Canal treaties. This was around 1978. Uh, Buckley and a few other uh, 
conservatives were very much in favor of the effort to return the Panama Canal to the Panamanians. This was something the populist right considered pure poison, and in fact it was something that uh, even uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, Pat Buchanan, and various others uh, wanted to uh, keep the Panama Canal in American control. So this, uh, Buckley organized a firing line debate on the Panama Canal Treaty between himself and Ronald Reagan. And it's really great. It's something that everyone should watch. It's, it's, it's you know, sort of the epitome of what firing line was all about. Um, so I very much uh, you know, want to call attention to the fact that even in the 1970s, we were beginning to see this division among conservatives. Um, but then in the 1980s, it became easy to overlook that a little bit, because in the 1980s, you had uh, Ronald Reagan, and you had you know, such a, a tremendous success for conservatism that it looked like everyone could get along because you know, the rising tide was lifting all boats, and everyone could agree that you know, we still opposed communism, we still wanted something resembling market freedom. The trouble is, however, that um, things weren't really... The conservative successes uh, to which Buckley pointed and to which Ronald Reagan pointed in the 1980s actually were never what they seemed. For example, the uh, success against the Soviet Union, uh, that the policy the United States had followed had never been the uh, James Burnham philosophy of rollback or liberation. It had always been actually the Kennanite, that is the uh, philosophy devised by George Kennan, of containment. It had always been about you know, uh, restricting the uh, Soviet Union's ability to expand rather than trying to liberate uh, territories that the Soviet Union had already taken. Uh, so, in fact, uh, conservatives can claim part of the victory for the Cold War. I mean, they certainly did help to kind of firm up American resolve. But really, the uh, strategy that succeeded was much more the uh, strategy that had been devised by George Kennan. And funnily enough, you can make a very good case that George Kennan was a true conservative. Uh, and George Kennan was not the only anti-anti-communist, uh, anti uh, as the technical uh, term of art is, uh, conservative back in the early 1950s. We think of uh, conservatism as being this anti-communist philosophy uh, that was propounded by National Review. But in fact, there were several uh, very important conservative thinkers in the 1950s and later who thought that the Cold War was basically something that was expanding government and was uh, you know, actually endangering American lives, and that we should have had a much more restrained foreign policy, and that we should not have gone into Vietnam, for example, or into uh, some of these other conflicts. Uh, some examples of this anti-anti-communist tradition, which uh, these are sort of mentors that Buckley chose not to adopt. Uh, some representatives include Robert Nisbet, uh, the historian John Lukacs, um, George Kennan himself, and uh, Peter Burek, who actually was one of the first people to kind of get uh, the conservative, the word conservative back into popular discourse, uh, even though Virick's version of conservatism is very much in favor of the welfare state and various other uh, laws. The other problem that came about in the 1980s is that the success of supply-side economics and the apparent victory of the free market against socialism and communism uh, also was not quite what it had seemed to be. Um, Buckley understood very well back in the early 1950s when he was writing God and Man at Yale and uh, some of his other early works um, that the free market... Uh, in, in, it means having tight money as well. It means having uh, low deficits. It means not having a lot of government spending. Uh, Buckley was very much in the tr philosophical tradition of people like Ludwig von Mises at that point. Um, but by the 1980s, um, the libertarians and the conservative movement had broken. In fact, uh, Bill Buckley had a rather acrimonious split with the uh, libertarian economist Murray Rothbard, who was kind of the great continuator of the philosophy of Ludwig von Mises. Uh, and as a result, once the Austrian economic tradition was severed from conservatism, conservatives became uh, much more vulnerable to uh, sort of panations, uh, things like uh, supply-side economics, which said that cutting taxes is always good, which I tend to agree with, but also the deficits don't matter, which is a, a tremendous fallacy that's going to create massive inflation. Uh, and also conservatives began to, began to lose their influence on tight money and uh, the gold standard and things like that, began to accept uh, sort of Chicago school ideas about uh, you know, empowering the Federal Reserve. Um, 
basically, as a result of these things, I think conservatism has drifted very far from its moorings. And Matthew Continetti argued that um, you, know, you can't argue that conservatism is dead because you don't write about dead things. Well, in fact, you do write obituaries. So when a significant person dies, uh, you know, people do tend to take notice of it. Um, I don't think the conservative movement is quite dead yet, but it has drifted so far from the roots that uh, William F. Buckley uh, you know, kind of established and that had established William F. Buckley for that matter. Uh, the roots of economic law, the roots of uh, moral law, and the roots of a restrained foreign policy, which certainly Buckley's father, William F. Buckley Sr., was always very much a non-interventionist. Um, these roots are the things that can replenish the right. And we see them doing so right now by feeding energy into, I think, the, uh, the Ron Paul movement and various other kind of uh, sort of grassroots movements that are both highly intellectual and highly populist at the same time. Uh, that, you know, some of these uh, movements on the, uh, the fringes of the right, so to speak, are actually doing a much better job of speaking to the traditions that uh, Buckley once spoke to uh, than the mainstream right, which again, I think, is dividing between uh, sort of militant populists and uh, social democratic elites. About 20 minutes for questions, so. <laughs> How about it? Uh, Matthew, directly most toward you, given your remarks. How much damage did uh, Bush's style difficulties create, leaving aside all policy questions, just his style? And do you think if, uh, would a candidate like Sarah Palin inflict the exact same wounds? Well, I'm not sure what. Um, <clears throat> Bush's personality? No, I mean, I mean his inability to articulate, uh, his mangling of the English language, his struggling with elucidating conservative principles and, and applying them in any kind of coherent, cogent way to the realities of the day. Well, Bush is a weird president. He has both the highest <laughs> approval rating and the lowest approval rating of any president since Gallup started recording these numbers. Um, and so when he was a successful war president, I don't think people really cared that much about his manner of speech, style of speaking. Um, they may have very much disagree with his policies, um, but uh, you know, I, I don't. I think that the, the speaking was a, a lesser thing. Um, I think what you point to with Sarah Palin is, a, is an important question. I, I wanted to pick Sarah Palin for, to, to be John McCain's running mate. I'm not sure she's the person to take uh, the Republican Party uh, back to where it is. I do think that she's a political phenomenon. I think Sarah Palin's like this very uh, unstable chemical that you're in a laboratory and, you're, and you just don't know what's gonna happen to you. And you can't, you, you can't forget that between her appearance, her debut in Dayton, Ohio, on the eve of the GOP convention, and September 15th, with the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the, Basically, when the global economy just froze up, it had to make a choice: was it going to collapse or not? Uh, John McCain was winning the election, and whenever Sarah Palin has been tested, whenever the spotlight has been on her, I think she's performed unbelievably. I name that Dayton speech in which no one knew who she was. No one, no one knew who she was. She knocked it out of the park. Her convention speech, which has to be what got the highest ratings of any speech, I mean, it's just unbelievable. I'd say her appearance in Saturday Night Live drew the highest ratings uh, for Saturday Night Live in more than a decade. She showed herself to be completely with it. And then I'd also say that her debate with Joe Biden, I mean, the, I, think the, I think the opinion in D.C., myself included, right after watching the debate, I was like, yeah, well, 
Biden may have won, he seemed a little more appropriate to the vice president. You know, that, the, the idea of appropriateness is very big in politics. You look at someone you think, is he appropriate to the role? Um, and uh, I think you might say, well, Biden's more appropriate because he's more in style with what we think of as vice presidents. Um, but the, the more that I look at that debate, however, the more I think Sarah Palin won it, actually. She had fewer mistakes than Biden. By, uh, Charles Cranmer's a great line that Biden is remarkable in making seven mistakes in under 60 seconds when he talked about <laughs> the Middle East, for example. He also forgot which part of the Constitution dealt with the executive. This is a man who sits on the Judiciary Committee. I mean, it's an embarrassment. But he got, no one mentioned that. Instead, it was seen as appropriate. So yeah, Bush's style may have been a problem once his presidency was already heading downhill because of his failures in Iraq, I think, primarily. Um, I don't know how Sarah Palin's style will, will play out in the years ahead, though I do think it will be a factor in our politics for some time to come. Uh, I really enjoyed your remarks, but let me just revert back to the beginning when you used the term uh, uh, permanent uh, economic principles and permanent morality principles. Uh, uh, I think if we're going to, I, I want to make one little criticism that's going to bring two, two points together. But I think if we're going to measure success at at those principles being successful in society, uh, it takes the populist to do that. And let's not get into a difficult situation trying to find populists. You know. But I believe we have this eternal conflict between the intellectuals and William F. Buck, I mean, uh, Hayek talked about the secondhand dealers in ideas. So important. Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh is remarkably consistent with his uh, principles of Hayek, as anybody I know out there. But what he's doing, he is translating Hayek's message and your message of the permanent principles to the people so that principles can be translated into policy. Without Rush Limbaugh, who is the most powerful influence today on conservatism, all your ideas will remain in the libraries. Well, I think the gentleman's remarks are uh, you know, uh, mostly accurate. I, I would agree that you need to have a populist element. You need, I mean, this is a democracy. You do need to have um, an ability to reach out to a mass audience. Um, I agree that William, uh, sorry, uh, Rush Limbaugh does have some virtues. Um, he often does talk a very good uh, game on economics. However, we saw that Limbaugh wasn't actually very effective at disciplining the Republicans when they had power. Um, we had massive uh, spending under uh, you know, Bush and a Republican Congress. We had tremendous expansion of the uh, Department of Education. We had the creation of a new federal bureaucracy, the Department of Homeland Security. Um, all of these things were betrayals of the small <coughs> traditions that conservatism had been informed by. And Rush Limbaugh was critical of some of them, but not really all of them. And it seems much more that someone like Limbaugh and many of the other talk radio hosts have almost been captured by the Republican Party. Um, I guess we had a discussion earlier on about uh, partisanship. 
Um, one of the great things about the early conservative movement was that it was not simply a, uh, a gloss on partisanship. Uh, conservatism was a set of principles that stood regardless of whether they were embodied by Republicans or Democrats or even the occasional uh, independent. Um, so I think we have to be careful. On the one hand, we want to be politically successful. We want to have a mass following. On the other hand, um, what does it profit a man that he should, you know, uh, gain the world but lose his soul? Um, it's not no use having political power if you're not going to uh, follow through on the uh, things that you actually believe in. And I think it's the duty of people like Rush Limbaugh, um, who does, like I say, do some good things. But I think it's his duty to kind of hold the Republicans' feet to the fire much more. Great. This question is uh, uh, this is uh, following up for Dan. Um, if you look at the early conservative movement, uh, every single philosopher, whether it's a traditionalist or an anti-communist, they all more or less agree on a lot of issues, like supporting Joe McCarthy or opposing uh, the civil rights revolution, which you uh, alluded to. And uh, also, there was a very popular element in the John Birch Society, which is maybe a little bit nutty, but they pretty much. Uh, supported the same policies as, as, as Buckley, and he pretty much pulled them out, and then any other uh, mass movement, whether it was um, you know, the Wallace movement, um, who basically supported the same principles that he, which he did in a lot of ways, at uh, 10 years earlier, um, and then later Pappy Cannon, who certainly was anyone who combined uh, populism with a real sense of intellectuals, and later some certain people in this room, uh, who did the same thing with, with immigration, he tried to kick them all out of the movement. Um, so really, I mean, do you think that Buckley is much more responsible for a lot of these things we're complaining about, about than, um, you know, this, you know, Rush Limbaugh or someone like that? I mean, is the problem, and also just to follow up on, um, I heard Mark Levin, who I think is a complete idiot, he just talks about all these great intellectual books he, he reads, and it doesn't, I mean, it just seems like he has nothing to do, so I mean, isn't maybe the books that we're telling these people to read not even that good to begin with? Okay. <clears throat> Marcus actually brings up a, a very good point about populism and uh, especially the early right. Um, it's easy for us now to overlook just how populist it was, and you know, in some respects, it actually quite a lot resembled, uh, you know, support for Sarah Palin now, perhaps, or support for, uh, uh, you know, for talk radio. Um, you actually did have uh, the Joe McCarthy support base was basically the Joe the Plumbers of Wisconsin. Um, and this was something that the left really you know, reacted very badly against. They thought, oh, you know, this is an incipient kind of fascism. So, in fact, you had uh, hysterical leftists, uh, you know, who got every bit as hysterical about McCarthyism as any supposed McCarthyite ever got about communism. Um, and this created a great problem for conservatives because while at, at the beginning they supported Joe McCarthy and they supported, uh, you know, uh, his investigations, uh, certainly Bill Buckley, uh, Wilmore Kendall, and Brent Rozelle did. Uh, again, uh, Buckley's second book, which he co-authored with Brent Rozelle, was McCarthy and His Enemies. Uh, although all of these guys put up a very, uh, a fight in defense of Joe McCarthy, um, later on they kind of seemed to repudiate that and repudiate a lot of the uh, very popular uh, movements um, that actually probably were quite salutary, including uh, you know, the uh, movement to uh, kind of restrict immigration and close the borders. This was something that has kind of been neglected by uh, the conservative elites for a very long time now. Uh, certainly, National Review has been rather inconsistent about it over the past uh, 20 years or so. Um, but as far as McCarthy goes, I should also bring up the fact that the anti-anti-communists of the time, the people I've been praising, uh, like uh, George Kennan and Robert Nisbet, uh, you know, John Lukacs, um, I think it was actually Peter Virick who had a very good line, which is that 
um, he doesn't like hysteria and, and he doesn't like hysteria about hysteria, which is to say that he thought that the anti-communists went too far, but he also thought that the, uh, the liberals were not really uh, firm enough against communism. And I think that's the most wise tradition. But of course, that's the tradition that did not get incorporated into the mainstream uh, conservative movement in the 50s and 60s. Uh, those people remained, uh, you know, on the fringes, or uh, certainly Peter Virick was one of the earliest people uh, sort of to get denounced by a, a National Review. So I think that's a tradition that needs to be recovered and that is outside of the usual uh, National Review historiography. And that's something that uh, kind of needs to be rediscovered and, and brought back into, uh, you know, uh, the mainstream. And in fact, let me very quickly say, uh, that's <coughs> I think that's one of the things Sam Tannenhaus gets right in his uh, recent essay, Conservatism is Dead. And he says, where are the Disraeli kind of conservatives? Where are the Burkean prudent conservatives? Now, Tannenhaus's economic views are very unsound, but I think some of this uh, sort of Burkean prudential conservatism was to be found in the anti-anti-communists, uh, such as Canada and Isbell. Sure. There's a, the, uh, the opening line that Sarah Palin began her debate with Joe Biden with had something to do with punching the quote-unquote fat cats mm -hmm. of the oil companies. Now, I guess if the conservative movement wants to use populism as a means to spread its ideas, to spread the ideas that really make this country great, that sounds like a fine idea. Louder. Thank you. But I do see that there is a problem. The problem is, I think, that there is a sort of a stigmatization of wealth. The idea that somehow if you're wealthy or if you're, if you're, if you're powerful or if you're successful and you amass something, that you somehow cease to become the ideal of what it is to be an American. And I've seen that a little bit. I think that a lot of people, they, 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 they misplace their efforts when they're a bit shaken by George Bush's his swagger, his near manner of speech. Uh, that's more presentation of the substance of things. I mean, I'm, I'm, I like Sarah Palin very much. I don't think people have any reason to hate her at all except the liberal ideologues have told them to. But at the end of the day, what does give me pause about her and some conservatives, particular ones like Marshall Obama, are ones who tend to stigmatize, in a way, those who are very wealthy. For example, the oil executives, who we can all agree we're doing what exactly it was they're supposed to do. Uh, could you address that? Sure. I think... Uh... Class warfare is something that uh, political parties uh, try to get a lot of mileage out of. One of the problems, though, that uh, conservatives face right now is that the idea of the free market and of entrepreneurship has been sort of muddied and polluted by uh, interests which oftentimes claim to be for the free market but are actually in favor of just shoring up Republican power or shoring up the uh, wealth of favored cronies. Um, I think it's very important that we kind of recover the Austrian tradition of economics, which is very firm on cutting government spending as well as cutting taxes and uh, going back to a sound money standard and not inflating. Um, a lot of traditionalist conservatives, I think quite rightly, bridle at the idea of uh, sort of um, consumerism and at the idea that uh, you know, we've had a kind of chipping <laughs> of uh, the quality of life. Um, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. The interesting thing is, and an argument that I haven't really seen anyone make, is that this consumerism is actually driven by Keynesianism. And it's driven by a lot of the uh, socialist economic policies. So while a lot of traditionalists tend to be quite critical of, for example, Austrian economics and libertarian economic thinking, the more pure strain of libertarian thinking on economics and traditionalism actually have a great deal in common because it tends to fight against uh, inflationary uh, measures to kind of get people to spend no matter what. Um, so that's how I would do it. Can I add something to that briefly? Um, I think you hit on something very... One thing it's important to remember is we live in a democracy, and the democracies respond to political pressures. And there's an absolute political pressure, which I think that uh, you've identified, which is a suspicion of wealth. 
uh, in, the, in the current environment. Why, where does, from what does that suspicion arise? And I think it has to do with the sense of public anxiety among Americans that the rewards are not based on any real merit. They're seeing a disjunction between uh, what they expect should be happening and what is happening. And that gives rise to these populist sentiments. And uh, it, I don't know what the, what the solution is to calming the, those anxieties, but that's why you're seeing that sort of rhetoric. We've time for one or two more questions. Does anybody have a question for James Pinera? <laughs> okay, there we go. I want to get back to your first question about uh, the moderator's point about conservatism being genteel and Buckley being a gentleman's conservative. Uh, he also was populist when he ran for mayor. He didn't do very well on the Upper West Side. He did very well working class wars in Staten Island and Queens. And uh, those of us who are veterans in that campaign remember there were Buckley Democrats before there were Reagan Democrats, which gets to Mr. Reagan. Uh, never a personal invective in a debate, never a negative ad about a person, always about ideas. And then we get to uh, the other kind of populism, I should say, too. Buckley had a role in launching Limbaugh, so uh, he had a foot in many, many camps. But uh, I don't know what we do, those of us who work with students and teach ideas, uh, try to get them to be genteel in the way they debate, uh, and carry uh, their banner to uh, the enemy, like Yale, Harvard, other places. Uh, when the leading conservative figure in, in America, frankly, uh, is not uh, interested in ideas. If he knows who Hyatt is, I'll give him a dollar. Because he needs a dollar. Uh, I don't know what we do about this. There's a great disconnect. And uh, I very worry about this. The most conservative, uh, known conservatives in the country today is somebody who just uh, foments resentments. Uh, we can all do that with that microphone. Uh, and personal objective. And I don't know where the, the two intersect. Reagan did not do that. There were Reagan, there was Buckley, there was Goldwater before the Limbaugh. Before Limbaugh, they would have conservative bonds. So I'm sorry for angry people. That's how I feel about it. Uh, that's for Don't you think we're making too much of an entertainer? It's basically what Oh, Buckley was a wonderful entertainer. Buckley without the theater, there was no fire one. I'm sorry. I'd like to hear from the panel. James, do you have anything to respond to? Well, um, you know, it, 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 I, I think, you know, I want to go back a little bit to your fusionism thing from the start. Um, you know, some may say that Buffy was conflicted. I think it was actually very complex. And he contained uh, multitudes, you might say, different opinions, different opinions, even a range of opinions. And I'm not sure he knew the answers to these opinions. And so I think that's why he brought into his fold people who were traditionalists and people who were libertarians. And he let them hash it out in front of him. And then he would kind of come to a conclusion making himself, which he wouldn't always share. I think it's the same uh, conflict we see between his elitism and his populism. Um, you know, he did, there was that revolt against the masses, which is a great title for a book, it's too bad it didn't happen. Uh, but he also said he would rather be, you know, ruled by the first um, 200 names in the, the Boston Telephone Directory than the uh, faculty at Harvard. Um, which is, I agree with that. Um, I mean, and that's, a, that's an interesting, it's an interesting statement though, because I, I think it actually is as much a, 
a tribute to, say, the people of Boston, as it is an, an attack on the faculty of Harvard. So he's, going, he's attacking the liberal elite there, as well as promoting the populist um, mentality. Um, at the same time, uh, he's famous uh, for um, purging the Birchites, uh, the John Birch Society, from the conservative movement. Um, and I think that kind of gatekeeping is what he uh, was um, most well known for in many ways, and most and it's still most controversial. And proud of he was proud of it. I agree. He, he was proud of it when I knew him. Um, he would always talk about the Birchites. Uh, and uh, what's interesting to me is I wonder if what we're seeing is a rollback of, let's say, that gatekeeping, um, in that the conservative movement has become more populist. Uh, in addition to the, the rise again of the social democratic elite, which is, was his initial target. Um, it seems that in a way we have uh, to continue about these legacy in, in that regard, and it's not complete yet. Any, any other quick remarks by either of you to that? Because our time has come, it's now noon, and so let's join me in giving a hand for a minute.